Welcome to Forecasting Impact, a podcast brought to you by the International Institute of Forecasters. This show brings together experts from academia and industry to discuss a wide range of subjects on forecasting science and practice in business, society, economy, healthcare, and education. Thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Forecasting Impact. My name is Mahdi, and I'm coming to you today from Brisbane. And I'm Savandi. I'm coming to you from Melbourne. Yeah, today we have a, a special guest. We're really looking forward to the conversation, uh, Dr. Ottoman Ozildren. Ottoman Ozildren is a senior director economist at the conference board. He specializes in the development of economic indicators and in forecasting aggregate economic activity worldwide. His research interests are measurement and analysis of business cycles, forecast evaluation, international economics, and development economics. Ottoman is a faculty member at Boston College, previously Ottoman worked for Management Science Association and was a lecturer at the Pennsylvania State University where he graduated with PhD as well. It's a pleasure to have you Ottoman today here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So as a tradition, we start off the question to know the stories of people's life and how they ended up in their career in the forecasting in general. So tell us about your story. How did you start and how did you end up in your current position? Well, you know, as, as a young undergraduate student, this is going way back, but I was fascinated with economics. And, you know, I saw that as a field that really helps you to understand how the wor world works. And originally coming from Turkey, I was also interested in how economies developed, how macroeconomics worked. So that really led me wanting to study more about economics. And I, I was a very you know, eclectic grad student at the Pennsylvania State University. And I was very much interested in international economics, development economics, macroeconomics, econometrics. And the blend of that, just studying through those courses, really brought me to an interest in, in forecasting, which, which later followed on with finding a position at the conference board. So, you know, this was a way for me to not only understand how the world works through, you know, economics and economic relationships, but to be able to say something about where it might be going and how it might be developing in the months and years ahead. Yes, certainly, certainly the, you know, it's one of the best ways to study how the world works economy because there are so many things tied to it in, in different ways that it is, it, it's a nice way to really look at the phenomena in the world. So the conference board that you're working, so tell us a little bit about conference board. What, what, what is the conference board to and what is your role there? Sure. The conference board is a 100-plus-year-old membership and membership-oriented think tank. It's a nonprofit, non-advocacy organization. We're based in New York in the U.S., but over the years, it's really become a global organization with offices in Europe and in, in Asia. And basically, the history of the conference board tells us that a number of you know, founding business leaders got together to look at the issues of the day back in, you know, 1916. You know, at that time, again, the world was in turmoil. There was a lot of disruptions in labor markets. And one of the 
first projects that the conference board got was to understand and measure cost of living to be used in labor negotiations. So that that got the start of the economics program at the conference board. And so fast forwarding, you know, almost 100 years later, I came to the conference board after they had taken on the responsibility to publish the leading economic index for the United States. And the the organization wanted to expand the leading economic index to a number of other economies around the world to have much more global coverage. And after working on my PhD in the 90s, I came to the conference board to work on how do we develop these leading indexes? How do we use them in forecasting models? How do we put them to use to help us understand where the business cycle is going? And so that brought me to the conference board. And now, a couple of decades later, I'm, I'm a senior director in the Economy, Strategy and Finance Center, which is one of the five centers of the conference board. Um, serving our business members and the public interest. And uh, we publish a lot of economic data and information and lots and lots of insights on what's ahead, what's to come. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you explain a bit more about what the leading economic index is? I mean, maybe all of us wouldn't know that. Sure, sure. The conference board is the most known for its economic indicators, and it's in the news for consumer confidence index and leading economic indexes, help wanted index. And so the leading economic index is one of that class of economic indicators that help us to track the business cycle movements in the economy. And the business cycle is a concept that, you know, macroeconomists are very familiar with. And understanding and predicting business cycles has been a very large research area since the beginning of the the 20th century. And uh, that work still continues. And there's still no consensus on a single theory of business cycles. So economists keep working on this area to develop theories and to develop various measures to track and forecast cycles. So leading indexes uh, are one of those uh, economic, uh, macroeconomic data series that help to both track uh, where the business cycle is and where it's going. There is a companion uh, coincident economic index, and sometimes there's a lagging economic index that are classified according to their timing classifications vis-a-vis the business cycles. So leading economic index anticipates where the business cycle is going to go. So if the economy is going to enter a downturn, the leading index will turn down ahead of that. And vice versa, on the up, on the upside, if the economy is going to enter an expansion, the leading index will turn up ahead of that. So that provides a very objective way, relying on looking at you know, what the data are telling us, to to predict where the where the economy and the business cycle is going and in fact when when these indexes were developed the the world economy was going through the great depression and this is this is an interesting anecdote because the leading indexes are probably most known for predicting when recession starts and so this year is, is a case in point. But back in the Great Depression, economists and the public was worried about when will this depression end? 
So they were mm -hmm. interested in when the expansion is going to begin, and they began to, you know, classify economic indicators and to develop these lists of leading indicators, which can be combined into leading indexes, which are summary measures. They're aggregated summary measures that draw from different types of economic data and summarize and distill that in a very you know, straightforward way to, to have a, a view of the business cycle that's not directly observed. <laughs> so that's, uh, it's, a, it's a major sort of, in some sense, the leading economic indexes are a solution to a very intractable problem. You know, how do you measure something that's not directly observed? Yeah. yeah. So I think this is very much relevant to nowadays. There's discussion going on, debate that whether we are in recession or not, and you know after all these things happened with COVID. So um, do you have any prediction on that? First of all, it's a very big question, but oh dear. But, <laughs> but in general, maybe you can give us some insights that you know from those indicators that we have. Have you observed anything, or, or how is it like? Are we in a recession right now? Certainly. So this year, especially the leading indicators have been receiving a lot of attention because of an impending recession. And unfortunately, or fortunately for economists, the attention increases when economic times are getting, getting worse. And you know, the ability to say if there will be a recession or not, or when a recession will begin is very important for policymakers, business leaders, so they can take better, better decisions. And that's why we get so much attention. And that's an area that we spend a lot of time at the conference board. And we publish a short-term economic forecast. And part of that forecast, the economic outlook, suggests looking at the leading indicators and other economic data that the risk of a recession has certainly risen quite a bit this year. And we have started to build in a possible recession starting around the end of this year for the U.S. economy and possibly for the euro area economy. And there might be some others in there because you know we have a global program tracking these leading indexes. So the short answer is that the likelihood of a recession has risen considerably this year, especially in the second half of the year. And it would be, it would not be too surprising to see a recession around the end of this year. Yeah. That's that's a bit of a doom and gloom in the future, isn't it, Adaman? I, I wanted to just clarify, with when you say short-term forecast, what exactly do you consider short-term in this space? Now, that's a great question, too. So focusing on business cycles helps to answer that question. So in the, in the context of business cycles, the, the short term is really the, the next several quarters. So we're looking at a short term of about six to nine months. And incidentally, that's the, the lead time of the generally the leading indexes on average. Um, but I would probably say, you know, somewhere between six months to 12 months. So with the short term is, is within a year cycles. The historical averages, they last around five years with long expansions that are interrupted by shorter recessions. Uh, recession will last a minimum of six months. The average varies country to country. It could be up to 12 months or 15 months. So the short term is really much more the near term occurring over the, the 
uh, the nearest future, right, within a year. And then we look beyond that to medium term and long term, you get into sort of five years and, and 10 years in terms of in terms of contrasting with the short term. Right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we will see the, the economic consequences the recession might have. I think it's vast. Like it impacts every aspect of the society. But and Marty, yeah, after it, a pandemic, right? Like we're just getting out of the pandemic. Boom. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to see. You know, if in the digital era we can do anything to speed up the process and you know get out of this recession earlier rather than you know lasting too long but well yeah so one of the things that we 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 were looking at you know the the profile conference board and the works that we have done is about which is very much relevant to the topics that we're talking about is economic consequences of recession and in general you know the the, the future trends that we have and not only in economy but other aspects like in supply chain as well so could you tell us a little about a little bit about the future of global supply chain five trends that you have indicated and in general how it looks like sure so the supply chain issues were clearly sort of highlighted by what the world economy went through with the pandemic recession. But even before that, we were observing changes in um, the globalization or global integration of economies. There was a lot of disruption in trade relationships. There was kind of the talk of the trade war between US and China, but other economies were involved too. And so that prompted us to take a closer look at some of the global trade data, studying uh, supply chain interactions more closely. And one of the observations is that while, you know, the pandemic recession really underlined the disruptions in supply chains and, and bottlenecks and the inability to receive and ship goods, and which of course later on leads to a lot of empty shelves or production lines being interrupted, but also high inflation that, that we're dealing with right now. So it was clear that supply chain issue was not just due to the pandemic recession and disruptions, but there were already some trends underway, really going back to the mid-2000s, mid-2010s, that the, the the world's uh, sort of global businesses started to shift their production and distribution locations. And, you know, there are some very detailed world input-output databases that you can put to really good use. These are very large, complex databases, and the OECD publishes related data, and the University of Groningen has their uh, WIAT database. So we asked, how can we use this very complex database to to think about, to look at some of these supply chain relationships. And the input-output table tells you within a country how industries are related, but we need really a world worldwide view to look at how those inter industries are also related across borders between different countries. And that's what helps you to look at the global supply chains. And that work, looking at the trade data, helped us identify and see more clearly in a, in a more evidence-based way how the supply chains were changing. And, you know, you hear a lot about reshoring in the, you know, business news, but what does the data say about that? And what does reshoring really mean? And so we did see that there is 
a trend towards the supply ch supply chains, distribution chains being reworked and maybe coming coming closer to domestic or home countries. Yeah. But the idea was they wanted to uh, the, the 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 businesses were moving their airs intermediate suppliers closer to where the customers are, right? So their customers could be in another emerging market. So that doesn't necessarily mean that all the production is being reshored back to the U.S., even though we are seeing some evidence of that. So there are very complex relationships. And I think world economy is going through a stage of kind of reorganizing and reshaping supply chains. And the, the data can be very helpful but it's also both complex and delayed in some ways. So, you know, the most recent data is from 2019. And since then, we've gone through a pandemic recession. We might be going through another recession. And before we really know where these relationships are going to, where the trends are going to go, we're going to need to wait for that data to, to arrive. So yeah. sometimes the economists and forecasters have to be very patient. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess when you explain the complexities about this, it is not easy data to get, right? Like you've got to tie up so many threads just to get, I mean, um, when I say just to get, not just to get, but it, it is to, to get that kind of quality data, you need to have the bigger picture and so many things. It's like a big mesh and to, to get that. So it is difficult. I, I, I mean, I, I'm getting the sense that it is difficult to get this data. Yeah, it's it's extremely important to to have access to internationally comparable data to do this kind of work, and it's nearly impossible for a lone researcher to be able to collect all the data. Although you know, in the in the days in the days of internet, it it is easier, but it is a huge undertaking that requires a whole team working on this to make sure that the, there are consistencies and comparability across different economies and different variables across those economies. So, you know, if you can find an internationally comparable data set like that, that's a treasure of mine to yeah. be able to really apply it to all sorts of, you know, questions that the data set can serve. And so it's it shouldn't be sort of a, a one-time research project. It, it could yeah. really develop a whole research agenda. Years. Yeah. yeah. So it all makes sense. The whole problems that you know to describe for for the global supply chain. We we all you know everybody maybe experienced it in Australia especially. We had when we wanted to order something on Amazon. Sometimes we had to wait for a month or two months or even longer, and you would just give up and say, okay, I don't want it. Especially you know for for Australian context with you know typical location that we have. So we had so much issues, so many issues in, we experienced so many issues in even the simple delivery of products. I'm sure that would have been in other places in the world as well. But one thing that, you know, comes to my mind is, um, which is uh, which is also tied to the question that I want to ask is, is about the digitalization in supply chain and in a broader context in digitalization in, in industries, in organizations, and I know you have done also some works on that, you know, useful and emerging practices of highly innovative organization in the digital era. So could you tell us how digitalization can help supply chain and in general in broader context organizations for you know, better productivity and better performance in general? 
Right, right. So th that is a very confluence of uh, or interaction between two major trends that we're seeing in the global economy, right? So digital transformation of businesses, of economies, and their application in the supply chains. So starting with the supply chain issue, that is one of the, the trends that we identified that companies are increasingly using digital technology and uh, things like, you know, increase, increased use of new databases and predictive analytics machine learning to manage their supply chains. And that's a trend that's going to co continue and accelerate. And that really gives a greater degree of transparency and control over where goods are being produced, how they're being delivered and where they are in the supply chain. Uh, and I think a lot of really successful companies are the ones that have applied those technologies successfully. And other companies are kind of uh, following in their tracks. So it, it really makes for greater efficiency, not just in production, but also in the transportation and distribution of goods and, you know, serving customers and consumers more efficiently, which means, you know, it can increase productivity, lower prices, you know, increase the, the, uh, the size of the pie, the economic pie, so to speak, right? So that digitalization trend is likely to continue in supply chains. And you know, there's a lot of innovation, so there might be applications that we haven't even dreamed about in terms of how it might be used in supply chains, linking producers and, and customers. And But that's really, you know, one side of the, the picture. I think digital transformation is, is really a bigger story. And again, the, the pandemic recession highlighted the importance of digital technologies. You know, all of, all of a sudden, you know, we woke up and instead of going to the office, we were working on Zoom remotely, working from home. And that's a very simple example, but the availability of the hardware and software enabled to continue in many industries, many sectors. It's not possible to do that everywhere, but in certain sectors, obviously, you could kind of continue the business activity. And in, in a sense, productivity didn't, didn't worsen and, and it might have increased. So the availability and the, the application of digital technologies is a very important part of digital transformation. But also research shows that it's really not just about, you know, buying the technology and installing it in, in your business or in your classrooms. It's not about, you know, getting laptops and sending everybody home with a laptop and an internet connection. There is a, a whole sort of slew of intangible things in terms of business processes, business organization that might have to change to get the, the productivity gains from the application of digital transformation. And that's another huge area of research that economists and, and management researchers are, are going after. 
Yeah, it's it's certainly it's had a massive impact on our lives. Like you know, you would generally before the pandemic, we would think that online, like for long periods, is you know, it's it's not not a done thing. Of course, there were these online courses you could take, but like for the day to day students that we have at a uni, the general standard thing was to go to the classroom and to see the man do it. But then we even shifted that to online, and that went on for quite some time in Melbourne. We there were. We were teaching for two years, also online, mainly online. But like in terms of the uh, supply chains and the digital era, and you say you, you said, okay, just getting the laptop, sending them home is not enough. You you have all these innovative approaches that comes with it. But how would you measure innovation in this context, Ataman? That's a sixty million dollar question, and mm-hmm. of course, a lot of a lot of our members at the conference board are very interested in that because you know they might be trying to make their companies more innovative, or they might be leading innovation programs, or they might be you know established companies that are trying to get to the frontier and compete with startups from Silicon Valley and other places. So. How to do innovation is very, very important. And the the adage goes that you have to measure something before you can manage it. They're very interested in measuring. But being a very complex concept, it's not so straightforward to, to measure innovation. And when we were asked this question, I think the primary motivation is, well, we want we want to be able to predict innovation and you guys know about leading indicators and predicting the economy. So tell us about leading indicators of innovation. So, and we looked at this question. It's very interesting and very relevant for all the reasons we talked about. But we quickly realized that it's not going to be possible to come up with a, 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 a an answer in a short period of time. And you know, we came up with searching the literature 400, 500 different metrics that people talk about. And they can be classified from, you know, all sorts of micro level, firm level data and macro economy level data that policymakers use. Very different worlds. So we 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 said, you know, before we really think about leading indicators of innovation, we have to step back a little bit and think about a, a framework for understanding these metrics. And uh, that really started the journey on understanding innovation measurements. And we developed a framework to organize kind of a taxonomy of innovation metrics that would help us to get better at understanding you know, the innovation, the state of innovation and saying something about where it's going, right? So I'm kind of thinking about prediction and forecasting innovation. And you have to have a good data to apply your forecasting models. So the good data comes from a good measurement framework that is organized, understandable, and gives you a coherent, consistent picture of what you're trying to measure, right? So you start with a definition for, you know, innovation, and according to that definition, what are the related metrics and how are they related to tracking innovation activity? 
within companies and in an economy at large. So these are kind of the elements or the principles that we were looking at to, to develop this innovation framework. And hopefully, you know, it's, it's already helped us to narrow down that large field of economic indicators on innovation and using this framework that we're calling signposts of innovation. And that narrower field will one day help us to get to maybe leading indicators of innovation sometime down the line. Yeah. It all sounds really interesting to me, the way that you have approached this problem. It's a big problem. It's a big question that you want to narrow it down and you know, break it down to different yeah. pieces and bits and then tackle that. And also very, very useful and practical. You know, In practice, it's very useful for many companies, I think, this framework that you develop. And well, it all sounds to me like the works that you do in conference, but many of them, you know, it, it, it is very relevant to our what we're talking about in our podcast forecasting impact, because the impacts that you have really tackling all these real world problems and providing insights on them are incredible. Do you want to share a story or something, you know, the, one of the things you, is your favorite thing, the, the, the impact that you have, I mean, you as the conference board in general, and you, maybe it might be your favorite? Or maybe the one that you think had the most impact or yeah. anything. <laughs> So again, you know, I think about measurement and how, how you would measure impact. And there are so many, so many different ways. But I think and one of the impacts is, you know, we publish all of these, you know, economic indicators and economic forecasts. And we have lots of, you know, anecdotal stories about why our conference board members come to us to hear about what our outlook is. And so it, it really helps to inform their view of the, uh, the world. And it gives them a kind of a benchmark to understand what they might be hearing from other forecasters, right? It's a yardstick to be able to kind of judge their internal forecasts and, and other sets that you might be hearing in the news or from other sources. So that's kind of how I think about the impact of the economic outlook that we're putting out there. I've, I've got a, a quick question on the on these indicators, suppose Adman, you've like the, the leading indicator is saying it's going to a recession. Can that can can that forecast saying we are going into recession recession can it kind of you know bring about a recession because now people are expecting a recession, they behave in that way, and you know can that happen? That's a great question. And I think one of the topics that has been discussed is whether there is a possibility of a self-fulfilling prophecy that would lead us into, into a recession. And I, I think one of the, I think, advantages of something like the leading index, which I follow closely, is that it doesn't rely on a single indicator, but it's really looking at the consensus of various economic metrics to see if the economy is towards a downturn or not. It's the same idea in, in terms of consensus forecasts. So from that perspective, I don't think an individual forecast by itself would create a self-fulfilling prophecy. But the the economic and policy discourse at large in the public sphere could contribute to one to the extent that as a result of 
those discussions and those forecasts, actual you know policy decisions are are taken. So you know there is an interaction. There is there are feedback mm-hmm. mechanisms that are at lar- at play, but I don't think an individual forecast is going to be by itself responsible for something like that. Right. Okay. So you're not bringing about the recession. We're just sort of, you know, hopefully not. You know, being a bit dramatic here. Sorry. Well, <laughs> it, uh, economics is a dismal <laughs> science, so it's 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 not surprising. But I don't think just by themselves are necessarily bring about a recession. Uh, with, sorry, with, with the with the conference board, with all the indicators that you have, would you have like accuracy measures to say how accurate you've been over the years? That's certainly something that we track. And in fact, when we were developing the global leading indicators, we put them through various sort of evaluation. And we wanted to make sure that we're not just looking at the history of these indicators, but that they're going to be helpful in in forecasting. So one of the things that we were looking at was, you know, kind of in the in the Granger causality sense, in a forecasting exercise, are these indicators improving our forecast and reducing our forecast errors. So, you know, any of those root mean squared errors type of measures to look at accuracy of forecast, you name it, you know, we've looked at it. And in terms of the actual forecasts that that we put out, we don't publish a, a database of those uh, previous, but previous forecasts are available publicly, so folks can see what we put out before. And uh, I, I, as they say, also the proof is in the pudding. So the the team has uh, received awards, forecasting awards in the past for forecast accuracy. So it's been recognized as a credible source for forecasts. So in that sense, we can kind of say the the onset of a uh, recession when 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 the conference board has kind of forecasted it, it is a likely outcome, even even if we don't, you know, really like it. It's kind of, you know, coming from you, it is it is more credible, a lot more credible than than seeing it on CNN or something like that. Like well, I think one of the important things that we do is that, you know, we provide our economic outlook and the, the point forecasts that, you know, you can look at. But we also spend a lot of time thinking and talking about what's behind those numbers, right? So, you know, if there is a recession forecast, uh, what is what is creating the risk and the imbalance in the economy and what is going to lead us in that direction? What are the factors that are driving this forecast. In fact, that is probably much more valuable and relevant than just the point forecast itself. And understanding those factors that are at play that are generating a sequence of downward movements is much more valuable in terms of taking decisions or looking at areas of risk or evaluating your own assumption. So whether it's in, you know, taking business decisions or investment decisions, understanding where the risk lies is much more important than the individual forecast point. So what what are the insights that you get for the future from, you know, those models that you're looking at, from the mm-hmm. leading indicators? Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, the leading indicator summarizes all sorts of different economic activity from households or labor markets or financial markets, manufacturing, 
but it helps you to really signal where the source of weakness is. Is it coming mm-hmm. from housing and construction or is it coming from financial markets? And or is it coming from consumers getting pessimistic and nervous? And that really helps to uh, paint the picture of, you know, where the the economy is going. And that's really the, that's the key insight or reaction to what's happening might be different. You know, the, you know, a point forecast of negative GDP growth might be the same whether the source of the downturn is in housing construction, like we saw before the great financial recession, or it's from financial stress, a kind of a global financial contagion, very different factors. But the result in terms of GDP growth rates might Mm. be the same. The, The number doesn't really tell you the insight about what you might want to do in in reaction to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, interesting. So we might want to move to last part of our conversation, which is, again, a tradition in our podcast. <laughs> I'm all enjoying the conversation, and it is very relevant to these days, no? You look at the news and you... <laughs> Uh, you know, you want to see what's going to happen in future. But yeah, we are going to move on to the last part of our conversation, which is, again, as I said, tradition in our podcast. And we ask, you know, interesting paper that you would recommend to our readers, to, to our listeners to, to read, maybe relevant to your area in podcasting and economics and all these things. So that's there are lots of papers, and especially about forecasting, obviously, these days. I think a recent paper that's been on my mind is by Frank Diebel, the University of Pennsylvania. And I recently heard him give a keynote on this. And the paper is on the aggregation of probability assessments. And looking up the name here on the aggregation of probability assessments, regularized mixtures of predictive densities for eurozone inflation and real interest rates. So that's a mouthful, but yeah. the the forecast aggregation aspect is really fascinating to me because I think many forecasters know that consensus forecasts and forecast averages have a very good track record for beating individual forecasts. So there's really something in that idea of consensus, which is also underlying the leading indicators approach, by the way, that that yields very useful information. And the title of the paper also tells us why it's so relevant, because it's talking about inflation and real interest rates. So I think that's that's a paper that at least central bankers would be very interested in. Athaman, would you, in addition to a paper, would you recommend a book on forecasting for the audiences that we've got? Again, there are lots of lots of books on forecasting, but one book that's that's always on my desk is by my late colleague Victor Zarn, who is a, was a scholar on business cycles, and uh, I, he worked on business cycles to the day that that he passed away. But this might be called an oldie but a goodie. It's his 1992 volume on business cycles, theory, history, indicators, and forecasting. And I think all the chapters are very informative on the state of indicators and forecasting and business cycles at that time. But with the benefit of hindsight, I know that uh, there is kind of a 
a line of research papers that have come after each of those chapters. So I think that would be a great resource for someone who wants to get better informed about business cycles and forecasting and with lots of great information about subsequent research literature to, to follow up on. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Athaman. I noted down both of them, and I will definitely take a look on them. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you today, and I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Many, many interesting insights. And Devandi, you want to? Yes. I, yeah, thank you so much, Adhavan. It was like absolutely fascinating. I'm I'm not exactly coming from that side, so I felt like there was this door opened, and you know, there's lots to peek about, and you know, so many goodies out there, which are interesting things. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Great conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you too. Thanks thank everybody you. for listening to us. And thanks everyone. Yeah. Until next time. Thank you for taking your time and listening to Forecasting Impact. If you liked this show, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. We appreciate you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next episode.